0: The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman is sponsored by VT Digger, Vermont's nonprofit news source. VT Digger is news in pursuit of truth. For the podcast of the Vermont Conversation and for breaking news, in-depth features and commentaries, go to vtdigger.org. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. For 25 years, Stuart Stevens was the lead strategist and media consultant to top Republican politicians, helping to elect presidents, senators, congressmen, and governors. He was Mitt Romney's top strategist in the 2012 presidential campaign, and he worked on George W. Bush's two presidential campaigns. Stevens, who lives in Vermont, has a a new book out this week, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. He says that Trump is the natural outcome of five decades of the party's hypocrisy, racism, and self-delusion. Stuart Stevens, welcome to the Vermont Conversation.
1: Thanks, David. Good to be here.
0: So let's start with the book's title. What was all a lie? Uh,
1: What I thought were the principles of the party is the way I look at it. Um, So, you know, back in the dark ages, say four years ago, would have said that there was a collection of beliefs uh, that were values that at least 90% of the party could agree on. Um, So what were they? Uh, Character counts, personal responsibility, uh, strong on Russia, uh, free trade, um, very pro-legal immigration. Ronald Reagan announced in front of the Statue of Liberty, signed legislation made everyone in the country before 19... 83 legal, Um, and that these were uh, some issues would come and go, but this would be what the party was based on. So it's not that the party's drifted away from these things. We've become, as far as I can tell, against all of these things. We're the anti-character counts party. We're against free trade. We're Putin's poodles. we're uh, for tariffs, we're uh, against all immigration. So, you know, you say, how do people abandon deeply held beliefs in three, four years? I think the answer is they don't. They just weren't deeply held. So what I thought was a belief structure were just marketing slogans.
0: So there are other core tenets of the Republican orthodoxy. Government is bad. Low taxes help the economy. Homosexuality is immoral. Voter fraud is uh, rampant. Voter suppression is defending democracy. These things have always been a lie. What took you so long to acknowledge it? And what was the tipping point for you?
1: Well, Trump was the tipping point for me because, um, I mean, the way I look at this and the way I tried to trace in the book was that there was always these tensions within the party. You go back to Eisenhower and McCarthy and they just played out. And particularly, in the Bush campaign in ninety nine and two thousand, we really tried to come to grips with what it meant to be a conservative in this era. So you can make a case that conservatism, uh, as it was largely defined for many you know few decades, was sort of a victim of its own success in some ways. So the Cold War was over uh, welfare Bill Clinton reformed welfare ended welfare as we know it famously um, Crime, that was, you know, crime, welfare, taxes. These were principles of the Republican Party. Um, Crime uh, decreased dramatically. Uh, Taxes went down from 70% to whatever they were. Um, So then what would become a new orthodoxy in the uh, Republican Party? So the way Bush looked at this was um, what a collection of ideas, policies that tried to put together under the uh, heading of compassionate conservatism. So he got a lot of grief from the right, some on the right, saying, so you mean compa- conservatism isn't compassionate? And his answer was, yeah, that's what I mean, um, and really tried to address it. Um, for Bush, uh, you know, the centerpiece of this was education. It, it's just what personally, for it's kind of interesting analysis you could ask why but it's what inspired him so in those moments in campaigns of which you have a lot of when you're sitting in a room trying to decide like what to do the next day the default in the bush 2000 campaign was always for governor bush to go to a school usually a disadvantaged school uh he'd light up he loved it he knew a lot about it he cared about it um as opposed to say health care you know he kind of thought you shouldn't get sick um, and that was sort of it. I mean, it didn't really interest him. He didn't think it was a bad thing. He just, it was not a passion with him. Education was. So then he got selected. His first major bill was no child left behind. So, you know, it's just, it's amazing to me. You go back and you look at this and there's George Bush signing no child left behind with Ted Kennedy over his right shoulder, which today would be presented like a, you know, indictment in a war crimes trial. Um, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you know, the Fox jury, this is why you should go to the gulag. Um, And there is a sort of parlor game amongst some of us who work for Bush, trying to imagine what Bush would have been like had he not been a wartime president. And I I think in retrospect, it was sort of the last best hope to uh, redefine conservatism in a way that would have had a future in America. Because conservatism, I don't even know what conservatism means now, but it's certainly, the Republican Party, I think, doesn't have a future in America. So um,
0: let's talk about Bush for a minute. You yep. obviously have a close <laughs> personal relationship with him and uh, have expressed in the book, um, you know, a fondness for him. But by many measures, Bush was a disastrous leader. He launched an invasion of Iraq, a country that had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. Uh, 5,000 Americans died in that. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died in that. Uh, and we're still there. The, his tax cuts and economic plan resulted in a historic Great Recession. And the federal response after Hurricane Katrina was a notable failure. I get that he was a nice person, but do you also concede that he was a terrible leader?
1: Well, let's take these one by one. Um... I think Iraq is obviously one of the greatest historical disasters in American history. Um, I have always believed, and look, let me just preface this by saying, you know, I worked in the campaigns. I did not go, as we would say, inside. So I was not privy to any of these decisions being made uh, inside the government. Um, so I'm, my view on this is uh, the same as anybody else from outside. Um, but I always felt that uh, Iraq wasn't based on a lie. Um, If only because if you look at Tony Blair and Bush and these, one thing politicians tend to have is pretty big egos. And if it was a lie, they would know that it would be exposed as a lie very quickly as it was uh, exposed that there weren't weapons of mass destruction. So I think it was a huge colossal, Mistake, um, but but with- the
0: mistake. Without getting into whether weapons of mass destruction were or were not a lie, that was an after-the-fact thing. A decision had been made to attack Iraq, and they had to trot out a reason, and they were trying out different ones, and W weapons of mass destruction became one of a series of them. On its face, to any Middle East experts. It made no sense. Iraq was a sworn enemy of the kind of fundamentalist, uh, you know, Islamic movement that bin Laden was, and nobody was able to provide a link. There were strong elements of the conservative, you know, political establishment, who had long been looking for reasons to attack Iraq. Um, And they found one. So, the lie part goes, really comes second. So we don't really have to settle whether Bush knew or didn't know.
1: Um, well, I'll tell you what I, what I always come back to on this is there's also an element was Bush trying to revenge his father. Um, I always come back to Tony Blair on this. So at the time people pretty much considered Tony Blair, the smartest person on the planet. Um, and Blair went along with this, so uh supported it. so I think you have to take it beyond Bush to a sort of fundamental miscalculation of the role of the West in the Middle East. so I think that there was a naivete that extended beyond the lie uh, or whether or not it was a lie beyond weapons of mass destruction of the uh, ability to successfully export democracy. Um, it came at a time when there was uh, increasing numbers of democracies that were being established. And I've always thought that that played a large role in this, um, a sort of well-intentioned naivete. Um, It's a tragedy. Um, I think you could make a case that um, neither Blair nor Bush had been in wars. Bush had been in the reserve, but that, you know, you ask yourself, would Eisenhower have done this? I would say the odds are no. Um, And I think it is a, could make the case, it's why having leaders at high levels who have been involved in wars make wars less likely. I think if you look at Colin Powell's uh, reflections on his role, it's filled with deep regret. Yeah. Um, Well, let's
0: return to something where you were in the room um, as and you write about the anti-Americanism at the heart of the current Republican project. And I, yeah. I must say this is one of the most breathtaking parts, the embrace of dictators uh, by Trump, the failure to condemn Russian bounties on American soldiers uh, right up to this weekend. He's interviewed about it and says quite freely that, no, he did not raise that issue with um, Putin in a recent phone call. Do you think that Trump and his followers are traitors?
1: Uh, I've come comfortable calling Trump a traitor, yes. Um, not in a clinical uh, indictment sense, um, but in someone who is against America. Um, yes, I feel that. I think Trump, in many ways, is a perfect example, ironically enough, of an honest assimilated immigrant he never absorbed american values um, and you see this uh, trump's a gangster and he operates the country like a, a, a gangster um, i think that you know if you ask donald trump you can be elected but it'll be the last election ever in america he would ask you what's the catch i think he literally wouldn't understand the question Like, what? 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 Um, It's. I think he's surrounded by people who are incredibly weak. And this includes Republican Congress, for the most part. Um, And I find it just incredibly disturbing and sad. Um, You know, I look at it this way. I mean, these are the heirs to the greatest generation, right? I mean, guys like my dad, like so many, three years in the South Pacific, 28 island landings. My uncle, who was machine gunned in Germany and never really recovered. Um, And there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands like them. Um, And then you have, they, they left this to this current, generation of politicians and they've totally squandered it, Republicans have I mean courage isn't standing up to Donald Trump, courage is getting out of the boat when the guy in front of you got shot and they don't have the courage to stand up to Donald Trump, you know when I say that had these Republicans been around in like 1776, 1775 we'd still be celebrating the Queen's birthday I mean it completely, what do you get here we're going to fight the king, most powerful army in the world, are you out of your mind, we've got to like work this out Um, they're just weak. They're weak people. Um, and I know a lot of these people. I helped elect a lot of them. I think they're not bad people. They're good people. They'd stop on the side of the road to help you. Uh, they'd be good neighbors. Um, but they were presented with a moment that was a test and they failed that test. And I think it'll always be their legacy. Um, not in the long term, but in the near term. And what I just don't understand is, to go back to this question of ego, because I think politicians tend to have big egos, which I don't have any problem with, so do musicians, actors, athletes, writers, God knows. Why is it that they don't see this? Why is it that they don't see that to stand for something and to lose is so much better than just being reelected to nothing. I don't understand it. Um, they don't need the money. You know, I get it if you're working on the Hill, the person you're working for becomes a Trump person, it's hard to get another job, you don't want to lose your health insurance or this or that. Okay, that's not these people. Um, and when I look, think back, you know, if you go back to the 30s, so like why didn't America become fascist? We had a large fascist element. Uh, Europe was becoming fascist largely, a lot of Europe, probably because of Roosevelt. I mean, had Lindbergh been elected president, we would have been the same country, and we would have been fascist. And probably the lesson here is just how much leaders matter. It's not like Germany in 1938 imported a bunch of new people. They were the same people they were in 1928. It matters. And this is sort of a subset of what we always said we believe, the character counts. The character is the soul of a nation. You know, we said it about Bill Clinton. I mean, William Bennett wrote this beautiful stuff, you know. It just turned out to be a lie. We didn't believe it. It was just something weaponizing to use against Democrats. So now you have people like Hugh Hewitt now are defending Donald Trump. It's just it's uh, it's just about power. That's all it is. Um,
0: if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. My guest this week is Stuart Stevens. He has a new book out called "It Was All a Lie: How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump." You write and you could never know how your choice of words uh, when you wrote this last fall would be so prescient. You write, quote, Republicans are allowing Trump to equate conservatism with conspiracy and the long-term success is predicated on stupidity becoming an airborne viral plague that will sweep the country like the walking dead, close quote. So, We're having this conversation today when the viral coronavirus plague has swept the country. 150,000 Americans are dead and counting, and Trump and his followers are still saying COVID is a Chinese hoax, mask wearing is a deep state conspiracy, and even though red state residents are dying in record numbers, why do conservatives embrace conspiracy theories like this?
1: You know, um, there's a couple of fascinating books written about this. Um, uh, One, uh, I forget the author, but the title is, A Lot of People Are Saying. uh, I think that there is this sense that there are these large, powerful forces out there in the world that are manipulating us and that we ourselves are not powerful. Um and there are these forces. So maybe it's the Catholic Church in nineteen sixty that's out there. Maybe it's uh, international communist conspiracy. Maybe it's the international Zionist conspiracy. Maybe it's the deep state. Um but at the root of it, I think, is a fear and because all conspiracies involve being frightened, and a sense of one's own inadequacies in confronting the world uh it's a lack of confidence which is fear so um a part of this usually uh is that these people are uh more intelligent than i am the uh, be they the uh you know, meeting under a a, a pyramid in the lure of, you know, the Illuminati. Um, And it's a a variation upon what has become now a conservative tenet, that higher education is conversion therapy to socialism. So this really isn't any different than uh, the Red Guard or the Khmer Rouge, that let's go kill the educated people. Now, the good news in a sort of uh, societal sense is they usually lose because the educated usually win. Um, So, uh, you know, the future of the country is not with those who don't have a college degree. It's with those that have more than college degrees. So the fastest declining large demographic is uh, white people without college degrees. And that's Trump's base. Um, so it's it's part of this uh, sort of, there's always a grievance involved in conspiracies. I mean, almost always. Um, something about your life you don't like has to be a result of other forces. Um, and, you know, Trump is a grievance monger and he's redefined what it is to be an american i mean so if you were particularly you know on the center right when reagan was president to be born in america was to win life's lottery i mean this was a reagan tenant you you're you're the luckiest person in the world for trump you're a sucker you're 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 at the mercy of these powerful forces in the world like canada um, and he's going to even the score. And it's, uh, you know, what I find the most disturbing about this is that as usually is the case in peddling these conspiracies, there's, it's usually peddled by a group of people that know better, but are doing it for their own personal gain. So if you take the Republican Party, right, you take about – look at the people who are thinking about running in 2024. You take, like, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri. So here's Josh. He went to Stanford, taught at St. George's in London, you know, founded I think, 1492. Um, went to uh, Yale Law School, wrote a really nice little biography of Teddy Roosevelt at 28, published by Yale University Press, and he's running against the elites. It's like, really, Josh? Really, or Ted Cruz running just by coastal elites I mean here's a guys born in Canada, married to a woman who's you know educated in, uh, in Europe who's a managing partner, at Goldman Sachs there's not one uh, uh, ticket that Ted Cruz hasn't punched in the establishment powerhouse I mean from being Supreme Court clerk to you know working in the White House um, there's just a complete phoniness about it. I mean, you take Laura Ingram. I mean, I've known Laura forever. She's not a stupid person. I think she's a really badly damaged person, but she's not stupid. Um, and there are a lot of uh, people that they know that they can manipulate people this way. Um, it's, it's really troubling. I think one of the biggest differences, you know, I spend a lot of time in Sweden. If you listen to those at the top of the virus response in Sweden, what is, and I think Sweden in many ways has been a tragedy, but they will admit it has, they will talk about how they've made mistakes. If you say to them, you've really handled this right, they'll correct you. No. No. We, we we made these mistakes. We underestimated the ability for it to kill old people in concentrations. We should have done more. There's a sort of rationality to it. And that, I think, one of the great reasons that the United States has ended up suffering more from this is a result of this um, fear of knowledge. Fear of intelligence. Um, so you listen to you know Sean Hannity instead of your doctor, and you know that's fine if you're like Ben Shapiro and you're selling vitamins or creatine, but it's not so great. Uh, or Laura Ingram who sells skincare products, but it's not so great when it's going to kill you. And it's killing a lot of people. Tens of thousands of people are going to die because of right-wing media. It's just, you know, it's a straight-up fact.
0: Um, Stuart Stevens, um, tell us a little bit about how you got into being a, uh, I know you've been a novelist, a writer, a screenwriter. You're an avid skier. Um, Where did politics fit into the, the story for you?
1: You know, I grew up in Mississippi during the Mississippi burning days, the bad old days. Then everything in politics was really only a Democratic Party. And everything was defined by this phrase that people would use. Are you good on race? or Are you bad on race? Um, My parents were kind of classic Southern moderates who were good on race. Um, And they were close to a guy named William Winter, um, who they'd gone to Ole Miss with who was a uh, Mississippi moderate. And in 1967, when I was a kid, he ran against the last avowed segregationist to get elected governor of Mississippi, a guy named John Bell Williams. Um, And I worked in that campaign uh, the way you do when you're, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, Um, walking precincts. Um, It was... incredibly dramatic campaign, um, more so than I realized at the time, but I kind of got little glimpses of it, in that uh, Winter got a lot of death threats. Um, And we know this in part because Bobby Kennedy wiretapped everybody and they still have these death threats. Um, And there's a beautiful documentary about William Winter called The Toughest Job, in which they go through, you can hear these death threats. And one of my earliest memories of politics is when I was a kid in this campaign, um, and Winter didn't have any security. I mean, when you run for governor, you don't have secret service now. He certainly didn't then. Um, but he had a group of law enforcement types retired law enforcement types, off duty law enforcement types who tried to offer security for him. Um, and you know, this is at a time when a lot of people are getting shot in Mississippi. Um, and my dad was one of those. He, he had been a former FBI agent and I have this vivid memory of being down in a, a High school gym down in South Mississippi on a Friday night, and Winter was supposed to go out and speak to a rally. And rallies were still big then, in governor's races. And he'd gotten a, a very specific death threat that if he went out, he would be shot that night. And this group of men—I mean, I was just sitting there—were um, trying to convince William Winter not to do this. And Winter, who was a very tough guy, um, was adamant he was going to do it. Mrs. Winter was there; she was kind of crying, and. Finally, one of them went out to his car and came back with this bulky bulletproof vest like they had then, and Winter put it on, sort of joking. They went out to the car, these guys, and they came back with rifles and sucked them under their uh, coats. My father, who'd had a rough war and always hated guns, you know, came out with a rifle. And then they went and just walked out and gave the speech. I thought it was the bravest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And they later came out that there was someone there who was going to uh, shoot him and probably didn't because he had this sort of little posse with him. So I thought, well, this is politics. Like what more could, this is the most fascinating thing in the world. So I was always interested in kind of in politics, film and writing. And I've tried to pursue those three uh, in my life. And I'm one of those guys who has been lucky enough to turn these advocations into professions. Um, I ended up working in politics. I've been a page when I was in high school, and the guy, uh, the congressman I worked for was running for the Senate, and his former, his chief of staff, um, was running for his congressional seat. It was a pretty typical thing. Uh, he was running against Senator Stennis' son. Senator Stennis was this giant in Mississippi. No one thought this guy could win. He didn't have any money. So he called me up, and I was at UCLA Film School then, and said, like, well, you have to make commercials for me. And I was like, well, I don't know how to make commercials. I just make these stupid little films. He goes, no, you have to do this. So I did, and he won, not because of anything brilliant I did. He was just the right guy at the right time. So then I discovered people would actually hire me to make commercials for him. So I could do it like migrant labor work. I could go work in campaigns. No one would pay me to write. And then eventually I got to a point where people would pay me to write. But I'd gotten into campaigns. Um, and I started working for Republicans because these guys were Republicans. Then in Mississippi, the Democratic Party was very much – two Democratic parties, but the establishment Democratic Party was very much segregationist, John Bell Williams, uh, John Stennis, uh, big Jim Eastland. Uh, And who wants to work for those guys? I mean, we didn't really know what Republicans were, but it was like, well, I don't know, it's better than that. Um, So once you start to work on one side of the street, it's hard uh, to change parties. It's very difficult to do neither side ends up trusting you. And, you know, I've said I probably was a guy who represented the worst of the American political system because I really just like campaigns. I was never that interested in government. Now, I knew enough never to work in government. Um, There are some people, I think, who are good at government and good at uh, campaigns. I think David Axelrod was good. Karl Rove was good. But I just like campaigns. I like to fight. Um, So I kept doing it. And, you know, the secret to success in political consulting is to work for people who are going to win anyway. I had good candidates, won a lot of races, and you start doing bigger races, and I started doing stuff, you know, abroad. It's kind of interesting. So I just kept doing it. I didn't really think about it that much.
0: So you say that you played on the dark side. What do you mean by that?
1: Give us an example. um, I'll tell you, uh, first race I ever did, I say in this book, I played the race card. I didn't really think of it as the race card then. So here's the situation. My guy was a white Republican running for Congress in Mississippi. He was running against a white Democrat uh, in a district that was about 40% African-American. Um, and there was an African-American independent running. So, you know, it was the first race I'd ever done, but it didn't take long to realize uh, the Democrat was going to get 90 percent of the African-American vote um, unless they voted for the African-American independent. So I made this commercial, um, which I thought was very clever at the time, which was just sort of like a PBS voter announcement. It wasn't anything um, scurrilous. They just said there are three candidates running for Congress and had a picture of each one, um, including the, the, the black independent just said, you know, independent, who could be the first African-American elected uh, since Reconstruction. So uh, the goal was to inform African-Americans that they had an African-American candidate in the race. Now, in the end, Mike, guy won with 51%. So you could say he would have won without that, but I don't know. Um, So, you know, I would say that sort of – but certainly when I learned the lesson, began to learn the lesson that race is the key in which a lot of politics is played, um, particularly in the South, but I think everywhere. Um, you know, I think, uh, listen, I, I I think everybody who works in campaigns does stuff that, would not be their better self. I think the Obama campaign, uh, and I know a lot of these people, I like a lot of these people, um, they basically, they ran as accusing Mitt Romney of murder. Um, I think they look at Mitt Romney now and that's not their proudest hour. Um, I've never been bitter about that in that race. I mean, I kind of think all this is fair or not fair, but it is. Um, but that's, that's true. To me, the, the biggest regret in the Bush years, uh, was, uh, in 2004, the same sex or traditional marriage, uh, constitutional amendment effort. Um, which, uh, I think is regrettable. I mean, I really wasn't involved in it, but, um. And at the time, you know, it's one of these fascinating issues. You look at 2008, every presidential candidate, Democrat and Republican, was against same-sex marriage. So Bush's position wasn't any different than Bill Clinton's position. Um, But uh, I I don't think it reflected who we were. I mean, one of the big differences, I think, and I think this matters, if if you look at in the the Bush era and for other people I, I work for, it was clear that the Republican Party's failure to attract African-Americans, what well, was clear the Republican Party was failing to attract African-Americans. That was math. <laughs> so we acknowledged it as a failure. And we talked about it as a failure. And so Ken Melman went in front of the NAACP in 2004. He was then chairman of the RNC and apologized for the sudden strategy. We talked about a big tent. Now, does that matter? I think it does matter. I think aspirational goals are important. Um, now in the Republican Party, we don't ever even talk about being a Big Ten. Um, and we sort of settled into comfortably being a white grievance party. Um, and I think that makes, uh, makes a big difference. So if you look at Hispanics, I mean, Bush got up to 42%, I think, Hispanic votes in 2004. Um, And this was something that Bush came to very naturally. First, I mean, in Texas, the whole Tex-Mex culture of Hispanics, it is really different. I mean, even Tex-Cruz does a lot better with Hispanics than most Republicans do. Um, But it was a real passion for Bush um, and something that he felt was important. Um, And then it just kind of went away. Um, so, I think that that's, if you, well, if you look at what happened after the Romney lost, so the party goes through this process, and Reince Priebus should get credit for this, he put this in a, it's always hard to be self-critical for any organization, did the so-called autopsy. So what were the conclusions of that? Why was it, you know, the question was, why is it that Republicans haven't won the popular vote? Uh, only once since 1988. Um, It was pretty obvious, but it's good to to state and examine, you know, needed to appeal more to non-whites, needed to appeal more to younger voters, Needed to be, seem more welcoming, needed to appeal more to women, particularly uh, single women, uh, single moms. Um, And this was presented not just as a political necessity, but as a moral mandate. That if you were going to earn the right to govern this big, confusing, growing, changing, loud, contradictory country, you needed to reflect that country. But then Trump came along and it just sort of got all thrown out the window. You could almost hear it with like an audible sigh of relief, like, oh, God, we don't have to pretend we care about this stuff. We can just win with white people. Um, And I think that exposed the hollowness of it.
0: You've been a key figure in the Lincoln Project, um, which is a group of Republican strategists, uh, such as yourself, uh, who are working to defeat Trump. Um, talk about what your role is in this, but also the larger picture. Um, it's not going to be enough to defeat Trump. There's going to have to be, it it has to be actively supporting biden and supporting a democratic senate because as we've seen you know if there's if mitch mcconnell is still the majority leader he can pretty well stop in his tracks he can stop supreme court nominees things we never thought possible he's showing are not only possible but he'll do them
1: uh well look on the lincoln project uh it really was the creation of uh, a guy named john weaver who's a longtime republican uh, operative he worked for john mccain uh 2000, uh, most recently ran John Kasich's campaign for president. Um, it was his idea. Um, he brought in, um, Steve Schmidt who had run John McCain's campaign in 2008 and they had kind of a McCain connection there. Um, he also worked for Bush in 2004, um, brought in a guy named Rick Wilson who had been a Florida uh, media consultant. Um, They asked me to join it then, but at the time, I was working on uh, Governor Bill Wells' primary effort against Trump. So I didn't really feel like I could. Um, So uh, They brought in George Conway, who I didn't know at all. Um, This is Kellyanne Conway's husband, famously. Kellyanne Conway's husband, yes. Uh, I knew Kellyanne. Um, So I joined it in May. And look, I just you know want to be clear. I, I'm very much a backup rhythm guitarist in this band. This is not my band. Uh, I, I'm just trying to help. Um, it's been a really good experience. It's a very high-functioning group. It's one of these things. We all kind of have big egos. We've all done, none of that seems to matter here. Um, you know, we have a few over the years, we've picked up a few skills, things that we're good at. And we're trying to use those skills to beat Donald Trump. Um, I mean, our choices, what are they? They're really kind of three choices, right? You could either support Trump. Well, that's not in the cards. You could either just kind of do nothing. That's sort of a drag. Why do you want to do that? Uh, Or you could work to beat Trump. So we're working to beat Trump. Um,
0: How far are you willing to go beyond just beating Trump?
1: Well, listen, you know, I, I... I have friends across the spectrum here, but I, I, have, I have close friends that are not supporting Trump. but feel like they can't support Biden and can't support Democrats. I get that. I'm just not there. I mean, I've reached a point where I will support Democrats and, um, you know, I'll, I'll become a Democrat. I think that when you look at the future of the country, uh, the discussion that is going to be within the Democratic Party is going to be of a lot more meaning than any discussion in the Republican Party. So take health care. In 20 years, is America still going to be the only country without national health insurance? No, it's not going to happen. We're not going to be the only Western democracy in 20 years. What that's going to be is going to be decided inside the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is just going to keep saying no. Um, it's, it's never come up with an alternative credibly. It's never really wanted to pass an alternative. So whether, to me, that debate within the Democratic Party between, say, you know, the AOC, Sanders wing and, I don't know, call it the Biden wing, um, is a lot more relevant to what is going to impact America than the difference between, you know, the uh, Josh Hawley wing supporting Trump or the Susan Collins that just supports Trump's agenda wing. It's really sort of a distinction without a difference. Um and I think it's going to become increasingly irrelevant. Um, I mean, this is, what, look, this is what I know about the Republican Party. It doesn't have a governing national future as currently constructed. Now, it's kind of like the subprime mortgage crisis. How long it takes is uh, harder to predict than how it ends. But the fundamentals are there. So, look, you look at Americans 15 years and under, majority are non-white. So odds are not bad they're gonna turn 18 and still be non-white. And what that means for the Republican Party is sort of stage four, cancer. I mean, um, there is no future. So when I look at the Republican Party, I think California's not a bad example. California used to be the beating heart and soul of the Republican Party. It was the, the, the fortress in electoral college. Now, the Republican Party's in third place, not second, third. Independent, what they call no-party preference, is second place. Will that happen everywhere in the Republican Party? No, it won't. Um, But uh, its demographics become destiny if you don't change. So you look at 1980. Ronald Reagan wins, what, 44 states, sweeping landslide. He gets 55% of the white vote. 2008, John McCain loses with 55% of the white vote. That's the, that's the future. I mean, it's just as, as clear as can be.
0: So what do you think is going to be the lasting impact of Trump uh, on uh, the country and on the Republican Party? And where does the Republican Party go from here?
1: I think, well, I think a bunch of sort of contradictory things, uh, which is pretty much to say I don't know. Um, I think history tells us that once a major political party legitimizes hate, which is what the Republican party has done. It's very difficult to undo that. And it plays out in ugly, unpredictable ways. Um, I think what happened in Portland is a good preview of that. Um, I think at the same time, um, it, it is the death of conservatism. So, you know, I did this a long time. If you ask me, what is conservatism today, and held a gun to my head, I'd tell you to just go ahead and shoot, cause I have no friggin' idea. Um, and say what you will about Elizabeth Warren. She can articulate a theory of government, and she can defend it. Now, you can hate it, you can love it, you can like some of it, some of it you can't. She can ar- defend it with credibility and rationality. I don't know anyone on the conservative side, center-right, who can do likewise for what it means to be a conservative. What is it? I have no idea. Uh, deficit? Really going to start talking about the deficit now? I mean, are you serious? How, how do you do that? Um, uh, foreign policy? I mean, Bernie Sanders is is to the right of Trump on Putin. Um, trade? Sanders and, and, and Trump are pretty much in the same place. Um, where the character doesn't count party? I mean, um, I just have no, idea what it means to be a conservative. Um,
0: Do you think Trump can win this fall? Sure.
1: Um, you know, I would give Trump about a 20% chance. Say, well, that's pretty bad, 80%, you know. But then what is the percentage that NBA players miss three throws? It's somewhere around 20% and they miss three throws. So um, that's not the most reassuring thing. Um, I, I think um, – it is all about the non-white vote. If we knew the percentage of the non-white vote, we would know of the total electorate, we know if Trump won. Um, so I don't think that realization has only dawned on me. I think it's dawned on the Trump world. And they're gonna do everything they can, legal, illegal, somewhat legal, uh, somewhat illegal, to decrease the percentage of non-whites who vote. Um, in ways that we can't predict. So look, I've always been the anti-conspiracy guy in government, you know, because I've actually seen how government works. And it's usually like, you know, sort of trying to say that there's, you know, some secret plot at the DMV, you know, it's usually just the DMV. Um, But, you know, you have to ask yourself. So uh, would Trump has now staffed the government with people who will do anything. So you take Chad Wolf at, at DHS, right. If Trump ordered uh, Wolf to go into Dade County courthouse uh, Sunday before the Tuesday election and seize ballot boxes because they've been reported irregularities, would Wolf say no? I don't think so. And then say, play that out. So they get these ballot boxes. So courts would go crazy. They'd order them to be returned. But then there's a question, have they been opened or not? You get a chain of custody questions. So then it's like, well, can you, what are you going to do? Are you going to have a revote. So then the whole election sort of thrown up in the air. Now, would Trump do that? Yeah, Trump would do that. Trump's not going to ask permission to delay the election. That's the whole, like, are you kidding me? Um, he's just going to do it and dare you to stop him. So would would Barr stop him? Not in a million years. Uh, and how many Republicans would oppose this? Maybe you could get to one hand. I don't know. I don't know how do you get to one hand. So, you know. The key to understanding people like Trump is you have to imagine the impossible becoming inevitable. I mean, that's the path of destruction of democracies. So how does the Sarajevo Olympic Stadium go from being an Olympic stadium where, you know, world peace is celebrated to a torture center in eight years? Stuff happens you didn't think would happen. Um, I think that Trump uh, is uh, has no sense of right or wrong. I think he's filled the government with people who are. You take like Chad Wolf, right? I mean, here's a guy. He's just a sort of low-level staffer on Capitol Hill. Then he became kind of a low-level uh, lobbyist, and now he's head of DHS. So it's the same pattern that happened in Germany. The way these people prove themselves is by their willingness to do anything. That's how you advance in that uh, operation. Um, so uh, same with Barr, and. I think it's an uh, the the normal malice of government is we're often said is based on norms and Trump has no norms, um, so I think it's a very dangerous period that we're entering in, um, and the easiest way to do it that uh, you know I you can affect is to try to run up a score on Trump. So, you know, if it's 2000 and Trump's losing, it's one thing. If it's 1964 and he's losing, it's another thing. So, you know, I wake up in the morning trying to make it 1964. I think that's the best guarantee that we can get through this uh, in some sort of rational way.
0: Finally, at the end of your book, you talk about the impact on society of uh, republic of what Republicanism has been, the racism, the vote suppression. Um, besides wanting to defeat Trump, how do you personally undo the harm that you acknowledge has been done?
1: Listen, I don't know where to begin except to be honest and to go forward. Um, uh, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what else to do. Um, it's listen, You're always in these moments where the necessary is inadequate, but it's necessary. So that's just where I began. Um You know, it's like with this Lincoln project. Uh, I mean, none of us think think that we're heroes there's some kind of nobility in this. And we're just political operatives for God's sake. I mean, how is it that like, we're supposed to be like saviors of tomorrow. We're not, are the guys are supposed to do anything. So, I mean, you know, Trump comes in and he attacks us. It's like, are you kidding? We wouldn't vote for ourselves. Like, what? I mean, we're not running. <laughs> You're crazy. You know, I mean, uh, it's like, you know, Bill Buckley ran for mayor in New York. And they said, what would you do if you win? And he says, immediately demand a recount. Um, so, I, I don't know uh, what what else to do um, except to, to go forward and uh, try to be honest. Okay.
0: Well, Stuart Stevens, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation.
1: Thanks, nice, David.
0: That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vtdigger.org. Uh, And you can tune in next Wednesday at 1 for another Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman is sponsored by VT Digger, Vermont's nonprofit news source. VT Digger is news in pursuit of truth. For the podcast of the Vermont Conversation and for breaking news, in-depth features and commentaries, go to vtdigger.org.